My guest today is Garrett Peek. Garrett is a team lead in Garmin Labs working on disruptive product innovation. He is responsible for guiding the research, design, development, launch, and growth of new products with hundreds of millions of enthusiastic customers. Before joining Garmin, Garrett co-founded several startups and worked for Zynga after the acquisition of OMG Pop, where he had designed the hit mobile game, Draw Something. As you'll hear in this conversation, Garrett's career has been a bit of a wild ride. I can tell you right now that things didn't always go according to his plan. From a young age, he was known for building and creating, whether it be Lego or painting, and he spent a lot of time thinking about how he might be able to use and apply these skills in the real world. After graduating, Garrett decided he wanted to move to Boston to be closer to a friend. But after 28 job applications, a single response, and zero job offers, he had to reassess. But this didn't last for long. Soon he struck it lucky and began helping out put together pitches for Super Bowl commercials. In this conversation, Garrett talked about how the moment you realize you're hitting your comfort zone is the moment you're primed for disruption. Obviously, I loved this part. Garrett discusses the common themes to success throughout his career, which he says comes down to three things. First, what teams would I be useful on? Second, how do I make myself indispensable? And third, and this is my favorite, what is fun to me? Not enough people ask themselves that question. He is pretty good at reading the room also, but I'll let him tell you that story. Garrett also highlights the importance of interviewing the company as well as being interviewed by them. For example, have you ever asked what you're going in to solve during a job interview? Like most of our guests, Garrett didn't have a plan from the very beginning, and only now, looking back retrospectively, has he been able to connect the dots of his success. I think this episode is sure to become an instant fan favorite. Let's dive in. Garrett Peek, welcome to the Bet on Yourself podcast. Thank you so much for joining today. Thanks for having me. This is going to be really fun. So you and I met, we were just doing the math before we started recording. We met at South by Southwest several years ago, where you watched me give my very first talk on a stage of that size ever. (laughs) I was still very much like crafting my message and how to tell my story. And um, yeah, that's where we we first got in contact. So thanks for doing this full circle moment um, and coming on my podcast today. It's a real honor. Yeah, absolutely. I think some things have changed over the past three years. A little bit. A little bit. (laughs) Good and bad. Yeah. And we're definitely going to get into a lot of that with you because I think your your career journey and your expertise are so fascinating and will inspire a lot of our listeners who are going through some of the milestones and pivots and um, other things you've experienced across your career. But I'd love to start at the very beginning at this podcast. I am curious what you wanted to do as a young kid. What did you imagine you would be when you grow up? Yeah, so when I was young, um, it was told to me uh, at a young age, I was very proficient with holding a pencil and pen and and drawing. And that immediately became encouraged. Um, And I also had Legos, so started building with Legos. So from very early on uh, point, I was, building, creating, and enjoying uh, how people responded to what I created. And when I got a little bit older, um, I thought, okay, the, the places where I can apply this creativity is maybe to be an architect or something like that. Um, I grew up in a, a farm community uh, in a place called Kearney, Missouri. 
which is home with Jesse James and the, the younger gang. Wow. So our main attraction was the, the home of Jesse James. And growing up, there wasn't immediate access to, I think, a lot of the, the, the great um, resources that there are now. So I transitioned uh, in school into fine arts and photography. Um, and as I got uh, the, the college age, was trying to see where I could apply these and actually ended up going to school here in Kansas City um, at the local art institute. And within the first year, we have this foundations program. Um, and through that program, I was exposed to a lot of, uh, a lot of different techniques and processes, um, as well as some additional introduction to graphics on the computer. Um, and we had a presentation from each department. And one of the newly formed departments was the design department, uh, more specifically the, the computerized design department. Um, and it blew me away. I, I felt like they were on top, just put together the best presentation of all the departments. And I was like, this, this seems right to me, like a, a light went off. Uh, and the rest is kind of history from there. What was your favorite medium before you got into this design program and transitioned into computers? I'm just very curious how natural of this yeah. switch it was for you into technology. Yeah, my favorite medium was actually charcoal. For those that aren't familiar, it's it's a it's a powdery substance. Once you actually get it on the paper, and then you can manipulate it once it's on the paper. And I really enjoyed um, how tactile that was to be able to change uh, the image with with your hands you know not not just getting this like you know very fine pencil and having to make sure every stroke mm -hmm. was correct like actually getting in there and you know smushing stuff around that's fascinating my mom's an artist so i had the great oh. privilege of growing up with um, her art studio she taught every day after school for kids and then in the evenings for adults and so I got to experience many, many different mediums. And honestly, charcoal is my favorite because of yeah. exactly what you described, yeah. because it didn't feel so permanent. I did try pen and ink, which is the polar mm -hmm. opposite of what you just described. Yeah. <laughs> it's there, it's there. But to be able to blur yeah. and blend and lighten and darken. And then even when she let me play around with some of those setting sprays, when you wanted that part to stay, but then you were going to yeah. add and add textures and elements. Now, okay, it makes sense to me actually about how that might translate into the way you design on a computer. Um, yeah. so did that feel immediately like a natural fit for you when you started playing around with that in your design school? Uh, the computer was interesting. It did not immediately feel like a natural fit. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I should back up a little bit and say that I've always had an interest in technology. Mm -hmm. And my, my mom used to take me to the, the public library uh, on the weekends to pick books for the week. And she would she drag me to the lab and I would typically have comic books and, and some, <laughs> some regular books. Uh, one of those books that I grabbed was an introduction to basic programming. Um, so I understood the keyboard really well, but I didn't understand that you could draw, or I, I should say, I hadn't been exposed yet to uh, creating images other than you know MS Paint. Every computer at yeah. that time had MS Paint. Uh, and when I was first introduced to Photoshop and Illustrator, it was the Adobe Creative Suite at that time. I, it was really intimidating. There were a lot of tools, um, a lot of like layers and steps. And to be honest, 
the most uh, that I advanced was on the job, on the job training. So give us a reference of where are we at in time? What type of computer were you learning on originally? And then once you were moving into some professional projects in design school, and then when you're getting paid to do it, what, <laughs> what, what systems are we using um, when you're getting your start? Yes. So I, I love telling this story. Um, when I was in, in college uh, for my degree project, um, I was working on an EMAC, which was you know the latest and greatest. But my senior thesis, they relegated me to the, the back corner of, of the, the gallery. And the only computer that I could pull over to the space, because it was in the middle of downtown, was a a pink iMac, <laughs> like 1999 pink iMac. Um, and I booted it up and I had uh, my interactive book, a digital ebook um, prototype built in, in Flash, basically an ebook reader, but on this like giant, <laughs> you know, pink orb in the back of a, a, a gallery. And, you know, probably no, no surprise, there weren't people hovering around my. <laughs> around my booth to you know, click on a mouse. Everyone else was, you know, looking at the, the beautiful poster work and uh, design pieces that the rest of the class had put together. But look at you now. I love these origin stories, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's incredible. So you learned a lot uh, theoretically in school. You are on that pink 1999, giving your senior thesis. What was your first job? What was your first start into translating that into your professional life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the transition to professional life um, was uh, started my my sophomore year. Um, I had really great uh, teachers that had us um, put together some some anti capitalism uh, <laughs> materials and stuff. But uh, to show the other side of the picture, um, they also brought us to an agency, uh, and they were actually doing Miller Brewing's advertising at the time. And I can explain that a bit more, yeah. but you go in and there's, there's a full bar. Um, wow. They were next to Cardinals uh, baseball stadium. They had tickets to, to go to games. They hosted uh, basically all their clients came to their offices because their offices were, were so entertaining and, and uh, high energy, but they had taken an insane asylum uh, an old insane asylum that I guess had gotten pieced out and decorated the interior with it. It was dark. It was moody. Uh, they had like fun functional spaces. And we got to meet with uh, one of their art directors there. And he showed us some of the campaigns that were coming out for, I guess, Halloween that year. And I was like, oh, this is okay. This is the applied arts. This is, you know, graphics, designs, word, imagery, getting put into, uh, you know, posters and pop-ups and all this point of sale stuff. Um, and that was all intriguing to me. You know, it's almost like the Mr. Rogers visit <laughs> of the factory, seeing how, seeing how stuff was made. Yeah. Um, and I got back after that, that trip and I was like, I, I think I want to do something like this um, and found out that they actually had a, a competitive internship um and uh applied for that summer internship and uh, since then i or while i was in school i did three more internships so I, I always thought uh especially for you know maybe students that are in school now um you, know, you do have access to a lot of resources and you can google almost anything but getting 
the hard part is, you know, being comfortable enough or uncomfortable enough or comfortable with being uncomfortable <laughs> to reach out and, and try to do internships uh, or try to have conversations with people in the spaces where you think you want to be um, and, you know, learn from them. And then if given the opportunity, you know, dive in. I love this story because you just painted this incredibly insane and inspiring mental image for me of this place you did your internship, literal former insane asylum, a kind of modern version of Mad Men across from this ballpark where you have season tickets and you're hosting clients. It's like this weird combination of things. But then you have this click moment of being like, okay, now I see how my talents apply here. And, and this was kind of maybe, was this among your first like big city moments, right? You're coming from farm country, you're moving into St. Louis, which is a bigger town. Mm -hmm. And I love how you suggest just being willing to be uncomfortable in an environment that's a little bit foreign or maybe taking a comfort zone and putting it into this brand new environment and ecosystem that you may or may not know how to navigate yet. And just trying it out and seeing how you feel and flourish or don't. In Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I don't think any growth happens without expanding your, your boundaries you know, taking the steps outside of your, your ring of comfort. Oh my God, I could not agree more. And I think it's such good advice for, especially early in your career to prioritize having as many diverse experiences as possible to really see what resonates. There's so many of us, I'm honestly so grateful the universe was like, no, you cannot have plan A because looking back at <laughs> my plan A for myself yeah. was so much smaller than what I then later received because I was forced to pivot because of then the dot-com bust. Then later in my career, the financial crisis of 2008 made me pivot again. And then now as a founder, you know, this pandemic crisis, those have been some of the greatest gifts I've got. But because of that massive diverse diversity of experiences I had early in my career, you can better recognize opportunities in their infancy and know when to jump and take that scary leap. So you were in St. Louis for a while then for that, that first role, is that right? Yeah, so um, I can, it's, it's a very winding path. Let's, let's um, take it, yeah. So I, I did the internship in, in St. Louis, uh, came back to Kansas City to finish out my degree project. I did two more internships while I was in Kansas City, one at a, a smaller independently owned company, uh, one at a, a larger company um, that did uh, qu quite a bit more work and, and larger work. Uh, and very quickly I saw that culture is top down and culture is different at every place. Even though, you know, you think advertising and marketing is the same, um, each place was uh, taking on different clients and also had different culture. So speaking of things not going as planned, <laughs> after my senior thesis, um, I had uh, a, one, one of my best friends uh, out in Boston are working on his PhD at, at Harvard. And he's like, hey, come up to Boston. I think you'd love it. We can be roommates. So I was trying to get out to um, uh, the East Coast and I, I knew that I wanted to expand my horizons. Kansas City was great, St. Louis was great, but I knew that I had to get maybe uh, on the East Coast to really grow my opportunities. And I counted, I applied to 28 places in Boston. I got uh, one interview set up and it was for a, pr a production role, which, you know, I was just happy to be on, on the phone with somebody. Yep. Me too. And, uh, interviewed for the position. They, um, you know, 
declined to extend an offer. <laughs> and I, and I took it pretty hard. It's like, oh man, like I've, you know, I've designed uh, at that point, I'd already had a portfolio. I basically had no job offer. I had to call my friend back uh, defeated. Oh, another part of the story, part of the, the hustle or, or the drive. Um, uh, my dad's a pilot and he said, you know what, let's fly out to Boston. Uh, you know, you can visit your friend. We'll, we'll explore the city. He knew that I wanted to get out there. Um, so we got boots on the ground. Uh, as prep work, I had found uh, an opportunity at, at Puma. Uh, so I put together a, a physical portfolio, uh, which to, you know is kind of ironic. I was literally printing out my interactive work <laughs> on a paper, something that I could hand to somebody. Uh, and I got all the way to, to their main offices and, and got through the security check at the front. And my dad waited down there and made my way up uh, to the floor. And there was, you know, no receptionist, no sign. And I was just fumbling around and, and trying to, to find somebody. And I had uh, at least a, a name, a point of contact from uh, a lecturer that had visited our school that was part of, part of um, their design team. Completely blind, went out there. Um, and uh, yeah, they didn't, they didn't reply. So you know, <laughs> uh, I tried, you know, I, I took it as a, as a clear sign that, you know, th that wasn't my time to be out at Boston. Right. Uh, later on, flew back to Kansas City, moved it, moved in with my brother um, who was living in the city. And uh, is around that time, I got a call out of the blue from somebody that was at the internship in St. Louis. He said, hey, man, I'm at this agency. Um, we're, we're hiring, uh, you know, we're hiring junior art directors. Um, I, I thought you were awesome. You know, I really liked all the stuff that you did during your internship. Um, you should come out here and interview for it. And my life since then has been a series of me trying <laughs> to, in, you know, get myself to certain places or, you know, work, work in certain industries and, you know, having the door slammed on my face or <laughs> not even opened at all. And then someone out of the blue contacting me and saying, Hey, you should get out here. Um, and so I, I applied for the position and within six months of me graduating, I was sitting uh, at the same table as the founders um, coming up with ideas for Super Bowl commercials. Whoa, Gary, I'm just like shaking my head like a bobblehead over here because so much, <laughs> even though I've done the like nerd version of that, like your story is very much in the cool wheelhouse. Like that's the thing. Like I've applied like 50 places when I was graduating from undergrad, not a single callback. Amazon is literally the only place that called me back. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and, then, yeah. um, and then I end up through naivete being like, okay, when Jeff Bezos had been asked to give a, a TED talk back before TED talks were a thing, uh, yeah, I had yeah. never heard of it. And he was like, hey, why don't you do a bunch of research? He wanted to compare the dawn of the internet to the dawn of electricity and, and or the gold rush. And so I was like, yeah. sure, how about I do that? Having no idea what a big deal TED Talks would become. That was my <laughs> third version of a Super Bowl pitch, yeah. Yeah, oh, <laughs> absolutely. You never know. If yeah. you want it to be this grand story of the time that you bravely marched into Puma and gave them your portfolio and got discovered. But honestly, the way it usually works out is that like somebody remembers you were talent. You were memorable. You were talented and hardworking at a time when you thought no one was 
seeing you. And that reputation preceded you and someone called you later. That is, I think, such a common denominator among so many influential careers, myself included. Anyone, pretty much everyone who's been on this podcast has that story of like, and then this guy from like 20 years ago remembered me <laughs> and brought this thing to my, to my door. So I love that. Like, how did you yeah. manage the, okay, one was people ask me all the time, how, how did I handle working directly for Jeff Bezos and working on, you know, creating the gold standard of e-commerce and TED Talks and et cetera. Did you, but my answer is I was so naive and things were moving mm-hmm. so fast. I didn't have time to kind of overthink it and panic like I should yep. have. Was yep. that your experience? Were you just like, okay, yeah, I'll write up some stuff for a Super Bowl. It, exactly. And, um, you know, Steve Jobs gave the speech about connecting the dots. Yeah. Um, oh, I love it. I quote and- it on a weekly basis. Yeah. And I, you know, looking back, I'm able to connect the dots, but in, in the moment, and I'm sure you can relate, you're just figuring stuff out as you go. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, or one of the favorite things that I say is, is from uh, uh, the creative director and co-founder of, of that first uh, company that I worked at outside of school. He said, <laughs> this was after coming back from a pitch and um, the clients were Anheuser-Busch. So he came back after getting, I guess, you know, razzed a little bit uh, during the pitch. <laughs> and this was a, a pitch where they had like, you know, three days to, to turn something around and uh, was told, is this, a, is this the best you got for me? <laughs> and and um, the, the co-founder's name was Mike. Mike, uh, you know, Mike was sharing the story about, you know, being, being on campus there and, and having to sit through that and being like, well, no, it's not the best we got, but it's the best we could do by Tuesday. Yeah. And that always stuck with me where we get so stuck, um, especially now with the ability to see what everyone else is doing and everyone else is doing amazing things and great things and they're only posting the awesome that we feel like in order to share something that we're working on, it has to be perfect. But in reality, it's that in the moment, like, well, yeah, I didn't know TED Talks were going to become big. Otherwise, <laughs> you probably would have been paralyzed by exactly. trying to write the perfect uh, script or correct or create the, the perfect uh, data set for, for mm-hmm. Jeff to, to um, create his talking points on. The best we can do by Tuesday. I just, that is such words of wisdom. I cannot tell you how many, now I do consulting for companies all over the world who are in that wonderful slash terrifying scale-up stage, right? (laughs) Right. And a lot of them do because they know enough now that they do can get that paralysis of being like, oh, it's not, and you know, you compare yourselves to these well-established brands and dialogues and product market fit. But if you go back to the originals, like the early, like gritty years of Amazon and Google that I saw firsthand, we, if you look at those original launches, it's embarrassing. The logos are embarrassing. The websites are embarrassing. (laughs) And um, it's funny. And it gives me permission now to be like, yeah, this is the best I can do by Tuesday. It's okay that I'm launching this. Because honestly, if you wait too long, if you wait until it's perfect, I can't remember. Oh, um, Reid Hoffman said um, much eloquently than I'm about to plagiarize. He said that um, if you don't look back on what what you launched originally and are embarrassed, you waited too long. Right? Just get it (laughs) out there. And uh, I think about that all the time when I'm like, oh, this this article I'm writing isn't as good as what they did, or my first book is, I don't think it's up to my potential of like my 10 out of 10 level, just get it out there. 
if it, don't wait until it's perfect and do it. Um, I just love that point so much. And I hope we could just stop this podcast right now, but there's so much more I want to cover, but I think if there's a major takeaway, I hope it is that one. I do want to cover, get ourselves to where you are now in your career at Garmin, but you had an entrepreneurial stage in between that I don't want to yada, yada, yada over, but, um, you work for an agency, you discover that you like small agile teams that can move really fast. How did that inform your, where you put yourself in the driver's seat of your career your entrepreneurialism, and then how that has informed or, or led you to the work that you're doing now and the teams you're leading at Garmin. Sure. Yeah. And I can uh, continue to tell the story here in the winding path. Um, having intrinsic motivation and, and feeling driven um, meant that I, I felt like, and I'll, I'll describe a little bit about my time at art school, um, I felt like I had to master the materials. So when when I did drawing and painting, I, you know, it wasn't an introduction course for me. It was, I must become the best at this that I can. And I've always had this um, appreciation of high craftsmanship uh, and this internal drive to try to master whatever I do. Um, and that's followed me, me through my career. So once I got into the agency life, I was doing uh, advertising marketing um, specifically for, I knew that I didn't want to work for a, a small brand. So when I found out that the opportunity in St. Louis was for to work directly on Anheuser-Busch, I was like, well, that's a brand everyone knows. Yeah. And I knew that at that time that a portfolio of work is a springboard. I knew that I wanted to uh, you know, have, have an, uh, an effect on as many people as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of you know, being naive, and, you know, I was still college age and, you know, drinking, drinking beer and mm-hmm. uh, hanging out and going to parties and live music, that kind of stuff. So having gone to work on uh, some Super Bowl spots uh, and, and launching a, a really cool campaign called Here's to Beer, which was actually an educational platform. I was in St. Louis for about three years doing stuff that I, I felt proud about. Um, but I was like, you know, I think I'm ready for that, that next rung up. What is the next rung up? I was like, well, uh, Mad Men had just come out. Um, Madison Avenue was hot again, or I guess never really went away, but I, I set my sights on that. Um, and I had friends that were in school, uh, in, in New York going to Pratt. I said, Hey man, you should come up once again, come up, come visit. Um, check things out. And I was originally in, in kind of intimidated by New York. And I thought, oh, Madison Dreams kind of, a, uh, I'm sorry, Madison Avenue is kind of a pipe dream. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll visit my friends. And we actually did a, a five-day shoot uh, for Anheuser-Busch while I was out there. I, I had a great time. And I was like, you know what? I, I think there, maybe, maybe I shouldn't think shouldn't stay in my comfort bubble. Eventually I got comfortable with being uncomfortable and went ahead and uh, applied and uh, was able to interview with an agency on Madison Avenue in the same building that Mad Men is based in. No looking way. out over, over the cathedral. Yep. Um, DDB, BBDO was in there. Uh, it was actually an agency called Rap. Met an amazing person uh, named Colin Glom. And he you know, took him through my portfolio. He hired me on. So I got there, um, in 2008 
And within a few months, uh, the layoffs started happening. I walked by, I was, I was taking the train every morning into Grand Central. I walked by Bear Stearns as they were taking the sign down. No. And then um, sure enough, week by week, as I came into the office, there were less people in the office. And I was like, why am I still here? Um, I was like, right. I realized that I was an, enough of an asset to the company that they didn't want to let me go. And I said, okay, that's powerful. So yeah. being really good at what I did, saying yes to everything, um, it was important. It made me an asset. But after a while, that that team, uh, you know, was no longer a team. And I realized it, it was probably time to to leave. Uh, and I left the agency life. Uh, or I should say I left advertising marketing completely and kind of had a quarter life crisis, I guess. <laughs> and I said, there's got to be something else out there. What can I do? Leaving Madison Avenue, two things happened. One was I uh, joined my first startup uh, after six months of, of trying to, to find where I could be. And then the second thing was uh, forming a relationship with Brad Estabrook um, at uh, Brooklyn Distilling, which was the first independent whiskey distiller in New York since Prohibition. Was wow. um, and the those things uh, kind of grew in parallel. Um, one was a, an application where I had actually uh, applied to a startup called OMG Pop. It was a gaming startup. I knew whatever I did, it had to be fun. So hence the gaming startup. And the other thing uh, with, with Brad, I had seen an article on, in the New York Times uh, where they had done an interview with him because of the distillery. And I said, I should just reach out to this guy and be like, hey, do you need any like photography done? Like, I see you got some new bottles. And, and he said, yeah, that would be awesome. So he dr- drove over uh, to where I was at in Brooklyn, dropped off bottles. And just by me offering to do some pro bono work, um, I've now worked with him for the past 11 years. And it went from you know taking photos for free of, of his products to uh, starting to design labels and point of sale and different materials and um, been able to watch as his distillery grew um, over, over the past, over a decade. Um, so that was an example of just like, make connections, talk to people, cross-pollinate, be friendly. If you're new to an area, you know, try to uh, go to the events or meet people that are uh, interested in the same things that you are. There's so much gold. I don't even know where to start to unpack from what you just shared. So realizing once you're hitting your comfort zone in stride, that that actually is kind of recognizing that makes you a little prime for disruption, either the industry or the economy or something. Um, But the reason you survived that pivot was because you'd made yourself indispensable. There's so much we could unpack there that you were one of those critical people who said yes to everything. You were reliable. You were there. You were going to be like, if they had to trim the fat, like they kept you. Uh, right. the, for, the way in which you know how to become indispensable is something I think takes a lot of time and, and honestly a lot of like emotional intelligence to be able to read how, how do I make myself insanely valuable to this and that leads into that next point of realizing that there's so much value in just being useful and creative and fun to be around and not looking for that instant reward of all this <laughs> if you do that I the same right. thing like that my pivot 
um, out of Google was kind of similar, honestly, my pivot into entrepreneurialism, because as you described, like having that safety zone of this big account, and you're the cool one, all your friends are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you work on those kind of projects. It's hard to let that go to work for maybe a smaller brand or something. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, I, egos are involved for all of us. But the, the thing is the same thing for me. I never thought that my next step would be in consulting, but I started doing it naturally while still at Google for um, some um, portfolio CEOs that my former boss, Eric Schmidt, had personally invested in. He'd just say, hey, why don't you have coffee with her and chatter through this you know, pivot point she's experienced or with him. And I did it just for fun because I wanted to remind myself of the thrill and the terror of those early stage years. <laughs> and then I just did it for fun, not for money, not for anything, not for, yeah. I didn't have any equity, just thought like, Hey, this is how I keep my finger on the pulse of like what's next and cool and disruptive. And I not anticipating that that would create my next stage in my entrepreneurial journey. So I think identifying what types of teams uh, am I really useful on? What environments do I like? How do I make myself indispensable? What is fun to me? I love that you pointed that out. Like knowing the environments and the types of projects that fill you up and give you refill your cup while you're working that hard. I say on this podcast all the time, your work should give as much to you as you give to it. And that's Absolutely. when it feels really fun. And I just think you are the embodiment of so many of these principles we talked about <laughs> on this podcast over and over again. Hi there. I just wanted to take a quick break from this fascinating conversation to invite you to buy my book, Bet on Yourself. It's available wherever you like to buy books. In Bet on Yourself, I'll take you on a deep dive into the best practices I collected by watching the exceptional careers of my CEO mentors, including Jeff Bezos, Marissa Meyer, and Eric Schmidt. I also share stories of what it was like to work at Amazon and Google during the foundational years of those companies and the internet. I use my own career as a case study for how to translate the habits of these super performers into any career at any stage and within any industry. I also attempt to answer the question of why all three of these celebrity CEOs chose to partner with me in order to fulfill their most ambitious goals and how I am now going to do the same for you. While these stories are fun and fascinating, what I hope for most is that you will walk away not only inspired, but with a playbook for how you can take action, recover from setbacks, and create your own wild adventures and joy-filled success stories, and a work life centered around your personal mission and values. Okay, let's get back to the podcast interview and more examples of how taking even seemingly small bets on yourself can lead to extraordinary results. I know it sounds in retrospect like entrepreneurialism was the natural next step, although I'm sure at the moment <laughs> it didn't feel that way. But then eventually, so you were an entrepreneur, you found co-founded a couple of companies, right? You did this for a while. This wasn't just a momentary segue. And then you ended up going back into the corporate environment. What was that transition like? And what led you to that decision to go to a big company like Garmin after and leave mm -hmm. New York City again? Because now you're in Kansas. Um, so after I left Madison Avenue, um, in that six month period of where I was interviewing and trying to find a, a good fit, <clears throat> that was a, that was a hard period. You know, that, that was pretty dark. Um, and cause I didn't know what it meant to do design work for uh, a company that wasn't an agency. Cause I didn't grow up in, right. in technology specifically. I, you know, I, while I was at Rep Collins, um, you know, rest in peace, peace, Anthony Bourdain, uh, actually designed an interactive uh, game that tied into the, the Travel Channel's Facebook page. 
so that was my first Facebook game. And I kind of held on to that. And when I was interviewing, um, I, you know, I, was, I was brought into OMG Pop. Uh, I talked through that and uh, the, the creative director at the time um, really liked my portfolio, but the CEO wasn't sold on me. Oh. The CEO, Dan Porter, I don't think he wanted to hire me. He had that body language. He had that kind of dismissive, um, you know, attitude as we were talking. And I noticed that he was drinking vitamin water. And um, I was talking him through my, my experience, um, you know, and, and some of the interactive experiences I made, but I didn't have direct game experience. Like I wasn't a game designer. Um, I hadn't developed or published any any games, any AAA titles, any of that kind of stuff, right? And I was like, man, he's, he's this guy's not gonna hire me. And I noticed that he's drinking vitamin water. And I was like, you know what? My on my website, I have the work that I did for vitamin water. So I pulled that up. And I said, wait, wait, let me let me show you some of my other work. Um, and I took him through my past marketing and advertising stuff. And I had designed the the label for the vitamin water zero launch. And it wasn't a game. It wasn't interactive at all, but it, you know, showed my design capabilities and through the brand, you know, the, the brand halo, you know, lent uh, credibility to me in what I did. Um, and after that, I was extended the offer, <laughs> like his mood. And I should say his, he probably doesn't remember this, but I noticed that his mood and his body language changed immediately, you know, circling back to being in the moment, making decisions in the moment, having awareness. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you're able to do that, no matter where you are, whether it's professionally or personally, mm -hmm. um, just being able to read the room, being able to see what's going on uh, is, is a really key skill. It's a, it shows such emotional intelligence to be able to do that, to one, notice that the energy was different in part of the room than the other. A lot of people, especially when in earlier years in your career, you're so much in cell mode. You're, you're already feeling like you're on your back foot that yeah. you can't take yourself out of that kind of state of, of trying to prove yourself to think, how can I shift the energy or where is our common ground? If I don't have common ground with you gaming, but you are drinking this thing that I do have a very <laughs> strong connection to, whatever yeah. we have, where we have this overlap of interests or experiences or values, um, let's use that. And just to have that awareness to see outside of yourself in that moment when, because otherwise a lot of people will be paralyzed by that. Like, wow, that feeling of like, okay, this isn't going well. I don't know how to turn this around, but to be able to see a glimmer of an, an idea where we could be like, okay, at least we have this in common. Let's start there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what was your experience? Like once you were in there and um, you mm -hmm. would, you would sold yourself, you proven you were a little outside of your element because it's a gaming company. Uh, I yes. imagine there's some, learnings that, that happen pretty quickly once you're in this new environment. Yeah, absolutely. They onboarded me uh, to some of the, the Facebook games that they're working at on uh, at the time. And uh, the environment, it was crazy. Uh, <laughs> I actually put together a video. It's, it's on YouTube. Anyone can find it of the OMG Pop Studios. And um, we had crammed the space I'll, I'll say it probably we were probably you know breaking some fire codes there. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was no back office corner office you know glass 
um, separators or anything. It was everybody just working in one space. Um, it was crazy. And we were just living, uh, it, from my point of view, project by project. Yeah. So just dove right in. Um, uh, a few months into to me being there, the uh, App Store had just launched and, the, and mm -hmm. Apple had opened up the ability for third parties to develop um, apps <clears throat> for the iPhone. I was like, oh, this is amazing. Um, and the the team at OMG Pop said, we should probably come up with a game. Um, and the co-founder at the time, uh, Charles Foreman, and a few other people were like, oh, we should come up with, I, at this point, I wasn't trusted yet with coming up with uh, <laughs> the content. I was more, you know, I was still onboarding and more kind of the, the design the design guy um but once they came up with the concept for this this game that eventually got called puppy world uh it transitioned uh over to me and a couple of developers and we made the first mobile game that omg pop had come out with we got a million installs uh, wow. within a like a month or a month and a half and we're like oh my gosh there's something here so it became okay let's double down on the mobile revolution here let's see what other uh games we could create when we started going after the uh the mobile games uh we first looked at the ip that we had um one of them was called draw my thing we took that uh i i was the the lead designer only designer um, fun fact that was actually outsourced. We had a, a developer in Austin, Texas, uh, you know, serendipitously, you know, me getting out to Austin later on, but anyway, that developed it originally in a programming language called Marmalade. So it could deploy to Android and iOS at the same time. We had this huge memory leak. It yeah. was chaos, uh, but we got launched and we were starting to get a million installs a day. Wow. And I remember, uh, the, the team. Um, had put together this this iMac uh, that sat next to Dan Dan's desk, and it just showed the exponential growth of installs. And it's like we hit it, you know, we, we hit gold, we struck yep. gold with this one. And you know, we you do your best to try to make um, content or or things that people will enjoy or appreciate or. Um, uh, you know want to want to use uh but you never quite know what that right recipe what that winning recipe is going to be no i remember it so this is what like 2008 ish because i'm 2012 was the launch 2012 was the launch because i'm remembering the sorry the first iphone moment when i realized like oh my god at google i was at google at the time we just had the economic crisis iphone launches and then we realized yeah. we have to pivot we, instead of designing for we originally designed for um, desktop, then laptop, and then our, I think our company OKR 20, 2009 was mobile first. And I remember oh, nice. wow. like major uptick of being like, and we wasted so many resources, but nobody knew what was going to be that killer app, that thing. And I just remember yeah. launching like every 40 days being like, maybe it's this, maybe it's this, maybe it's this. And then you, it's yeah. never what you expect. I just remember that wild ride of those four years from like the iPhone, then we bought yes. Android and like all the madness that ensued. Those were crazy great years. Yeah, it really was a wild west and, and yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll echo this again. You never know in the moment. You just got to... No. 
you're just uh, making stuff and, and yeah. trying stuff and uh, making the best decisions you, you can at the time. Going um, back to your, your quote that I love from Steve Jobs, it's only in retrospect, right? That those dots connect. Mm -hmm. You don't, yeah. sometimes there's rare moments in your life when you're like, oh my gosh, this is a pivot moment. This is a sliding door moment and everything's about to change. Um, but mm -hmm. most of the time it is in retrospect when we, when we identify those. So I happen to know that OMG Pop had quite a spectacular exit towards the end of your career there. Can you tell me what that exit was like and how that informed the next steps of your entrepreneurial journey for yourself? Yeah, actually that was um, pretty bittersweet. Uh, for, for those that aren't familiar, uh, OMG Pop launched the mobile hit game, uh, Draw Something, and we were getting about a million installs per day. So, you know, overnight success, you know, saved, saved the studio. Uh, Zynga at that point had just IPO'd and they were flush with cash and they were buying up, uh, I guess, I guess you could say competition, but really they're trying to, you know, fill, uh, fill out their, their portfolio. And so they acquired OMG Pop. And overnight, it went from, you know, having these parties and all these celebrations to being in the middle of a transition to uh, being owned by a larger company. And the, it was clear that Zynga wasn't quite sure what to do with us um, in terms of we're an independent agency that had just come under the umbrella, um, you know, they eventually uh, in 2013 uh, laid off the entire studio so wow. came in one day it was uh you know you can you can sign this paperwork and uh leave today and you know we'll we'll cash you out kind of thing or you cannot sign this paperwork and we won't cash you out and wow. all that stuff um and i remember carrying you know <laughs> like 80 pounds worth of stuff because you know, I practically lived at, at, the, uh, at the offices there, you know, big containers of, of protein powder and yep. um, all, all that kind of stuff. And uh, as I was leaving, I was like, man, I've, I've spent so much time and energy with large brands, uh, with, with companies and making um, a lot of other people a lot of money. And uh, at, at this point, um, I was starting to understand how, how I needed to have equity in something. Like the, the, the acquisition of OMG Pop um, <laughs> uh, resulted in uh, hundreds of dollars of windfall for me. Um, so I was still, <laughs> you know, <laughs> very much in need of uh, find, finding work. And so I said, you know what? I can create the value. Let me, I, I, I learned a hard lesson. I said, okay, I have to have equity yeah. uh, in something. And I had a connection uh, through a roommate that wanted to develop an app. And I said, I have all the free time in the world now. Um, and I was always interested in fitness and wellness. And uh, his name's Philip. He and I designed uh, a social uh, a social platform for connecting people to play sports together. And we didn't have a technical founder at that time yet. So we went out, we were going to all the, the meetup events that yeah. we eventually found, founded our technical co-founder at uh, AT&T uh, headquarters there uh, in, in NoHo <laughs> at an event. And we were able to rope him in uh, and we started building uh, some of the prototypes. 
And how did you how did you choose the technical co-founder? Because this is a frequently asked question I get. It's like, how do you find that right partnership? What what were the characteristics you were looking for? So when you met him, you're like, okay, this is the guy. It's it's amazing what communication, face to face communication does. So can were we able to communicate with this person? And then of course you got to kick the tires, right? Uh, was he technically proficient? What what was his past work? Um, he had already developed several apps, uh, super sharp dude, um, and his name's David. And uh, we were like, you know what? We don't need the perfect, we're sorry to go full circle. Like I wasn't the perfect designer. Like, uh, you know, this was gonna be Philip and my first first individual startup. Yeah. Um, we, we just needed people that we can communicate effectively with that were proficient at what they did enough to get that prototype going um so you know it's a risk and yeah. when you're when you're you're young uh your time uh, you have time to make uh i don't want to say mistakes but you have time to explore things yeah. um calculated and, risks yeah calculated risks absolutely yeah. yeah so i think um we we had also talked with some other uh potentials for technical co-founders and you know they weren't they weren't calling us back. They weren't communicating. So it was clear that they didn't have that internal drive to actually make something. Um, and so it was as pre it's pretty much as simple as that. They could wear a lot of hats. Exactly. Co-founding and early employees is a completely different checklist of things you're looking at. And I think then when you're in the scale up and, and uh, mm -hmm. legacy company stage, for sure. So that that was a transition to the startup is basically feeling jaded, <laughs> um, you know, my, my first my first uh, startup experience going outrageously well. And then, you know, the peak of the mountain to, you know, bottom of the, you know, down down in the ditch, wow. uh, co-founding the startup um, and then going out and being like, OK, we need to we need to check all the boxes. We need to find an investor. We have to do the circuit. We have to do the dog and pony show. We have to present. We have to sell people on our idea. Yeah. Um, we have to raise money. And you know, looking back, it's like, why did we think we needed to do that? Like, if we could <laughs> build this stuff on our own, like, um, so. I, I see so many. I see so many entrepreneurs feeling like they have to do that. They have to raise hundred million dollars. They have to do the VC route. They have to. I, no, I mean, I, I totally agree. Just build it. <laughs> I think it's interesting Absolutely. to see now being based in Europe, much more European CEOs take that ladder route where they just start building it. They get some fit, they get their thing. And then there's pros and cons to both sides, of course. But now I'm seeing kind of this equalizer where Europeans are being more risk-taking, but still have those instincts of, of just building it really scrappy for as long as possible. I think it's so interesting the different perspectives on entrepreneurialism. I'm glad to see more people realizing there's multiple paths. What are you thinking now, as we're kind of thinking about these moments that have been so instrumental in our careers, these moments in time, this realizing where your right fit is and what, what you want from life and what your talents are and what types of teams you enjoy the most, how would you describe, and I don't know if you would describe it this way, I'm currently obsessed with like the concept of living legacy. Instead of looking back at the end of our careers and kind of thinking about legacy when we're retiring, right now where we've kind of got some some established expertise, we know our personal individual values, we've got some goals, 
Are you thinking about this stage of your career now, building upon all of these incredible bets that you've made on yourself about your living legacy, about how you're using your talents and your time and, and where you're dedicating your, your impact on your community or, or this industry that you've got? What, what are your thoughts around that? Absolutely, yes. So um, as a designer and a creator in general and having that portfolio and then understanding the representation of myself, I was looking at my portfolio and I was like, wow, I've sure sold a lot of sugary beverages and adult beverages. Um, you know, I've, I've scared old people into taking <laughs> um, You know, I've created uh, an app that's, you know, responsible for probably billions of at least a billion hours of, of, uh, you know, time spent, you know, not with friends physically. Um, and that was, that was the transition, uh, that, that living legacy. And I, I love the way you, you described that, that, that reflection on self and what we're doing now and how we can contribute, um, to, um, our community, ourselves, our, our family. And I realized that I wanted to have a, a more positive lasting effect. Um, and I've always been into uh, health and wellness, <laughs> uh, despite, you know, having worked in uh, different, uh, on different brands. And uh, it was important for me to transition to a place where not only I was learning again, but also always having a positive impact. Mm -hmm. And I was visiting family here in Kansas City and I saw, you know, serendipity or right place at the right time or just, you know, um, the, the things you can't account for, just, you know, having awareness. I went to Garmin's job postings and there was this new role for a product architect in Area 51 in Garmin so mysterious. Uh, I love that title. Yeah. 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 I was like, one, this is cool. I have to yeah. do cool stuff. <laughs> uh, two, this is uh, a brand that um, I'm only somewhat familiar with, but I know that they have devices for runners. Um, yeah. They have uh, the, the fitness uh, at, at the time, the connect mobile app. And I was like, you know what? I'll just go in for an interview. Um, you know, I, I did my research, of course, you always do your due diligence yeah. um, for any of anyone out there that's uh, about to be a new hire, read up on the company, like understand their products and services, and then ask them what their challenges are uh, with those products and services. Because if you go in and, and you're able to help uncover their challenges, then you can, even in an interview, start to suggest how you may be able to provide solutions uh, for those challenges. So, so such good advice. So many people don't do that. I'm actually literally writing an article right now about how to win as a candidate um, considering a new job. How do you interview that company for a value alignment and where your skills match their needs? Like people don't take that proactive approach. So many people are in sell mode yeah. that they don't actually think about what problem am I, would I be here to solve? Oh, that's so good. Yes. Absolutely. Um, this is the longest I've been at, at any, in any career, uh, is, is now a Garmin. And I think it's um, almost seven years now, right? Six nine, yeah, nine, yeah. Almost yeah. seven years. Yeah. Um, I was on the first wave of external hires for Area 51. Um, and over the past eight years, um, Area 51's done a ton of stuff. And we just recently, uh, have 
rebranded or are formalized as Garmin Labs. So we're we're a global. We have multiple offices now, uh, and we're a very large and diverse team. Um, but for that living legacy, uh, specifically, you had asked uh, uh, originally, are there any projects that you're most proud of? Yeah. And the first project that I worked on at Garmin, um, and also my son had just been born uh, at that time, so he's still a baby, was the product that became the VivoFit Junior. So when I joined the team, uh, my boss at the time, Eric Helling, he had a concept for uh, a family, something that could just help help families, help kids, help families. Um, and it was pretty, pretty clean slate. Um, and I was given the opportunity to uh, do design research, explore, and as a product architect, come up with the features and uh, identify what I thought it should do. And one of the things that our team does really well is, is Get, gets to the user, gets to the customer. Um, uh, Eric did an awesome job of bringing kids in, bringing families in, uh, just cross-pollinating, talking with people, having conversations, um, and getting exposed to what those, those pain points were, and then looking at how we could help, how we could be part of a family's life in a positive way. But that is the product that has been uh, it was the first product that I launched at Garmin and it's it's now its own business um the the, the numbers uh, are, are very good uh and shortly after we launched we got a call from Disney and Disney said you know we think you guys nailed it we would love to partner with you on this and that serendipity comes from you know what make something make something you can share and this is uh, part of the the inno innovation uh, sessions that that we do here, or I just gave a presentation last week about this. Step three is sh share what you make and get feedback. And you can never get to step three until you get through the first two steps, which are, you know, obviously researching and coming up with an idea, but actually making something. Because you can't have a conversation with somebody until you have a topic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like so many people want to skip directly to step three. They yeah. want to just, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't that be great if that's how life worked, but it's so much of the creating engineering serendipity for yourself. I know it looks like you're an overnight success, but it's always 10 years in the making. It's that, yeah. you know, sitting there doing your self-imposed homework, as I call it, doing your research, thinking of things deeper, following your curiosities, just one or two yeah. more levels deeper. And that informs so much more of a richer experience and putting, you've, you've demonstrated in this conversation alone, multiple times of putting something out there that wasn't perfect. You knew it wasn't the perfect fit for the meeting or it wasn't the perfect pitch for what you're trying to do. or You didn't have the perfect expertise for it, but you were confident that you had done your homework, you'd done your research, you were emotionally intelligent enough to be aware of how to pivot it. You were like, you didn't pretend, you weren't pitching something pretending it was perfect. You put it out there in its form. And from that magic can happen. You allow people to be part of your process instead of just being like presenting this final polished thing that no one else can participate in. You, you mentioned something there that uh, I thought was perfect in that the phrase following your curiosity, that, um, 
that is what we hire for mm -hmm. on our innovation team. If anybody wants to be part of uh, the group that makes new stuff or, you know, shapes culture or shapes technology, if you follow your curiosity and you apply your expertise towards that curiosity, you're going to, you're going to, you know, move mountains and it may not, it's definitely not going to happen alone, you know, finding people and sharing that curiosity is important. But when we hire into our team, one of the key things that we do is we ask the, uh, the, the person to share other things that they're passionate about and to share examples of what they've done with that passion. Yeah. And it's a pretty clear indicator if someone is intrinsically driven and motivated to create, um, they're going to have passion projects outside of work or outside of school or outside of college that they've not only, you know, you know, bought into it, but they've maybe engineered or created something for, for that. I couldn't agree more. One of my favorite things, I interviewed, I think, literally thousands of people during my 12 years at Google for, mm -hmm. for jobs there. And it's, it's always, even in its earliest years, um, attracted really high quality candidates. But mm -hmm. one of the scores that are most important if you're applying, I think at tech companies in general, it sounds so similar to what you're hiring for, is um, something at Google we call your googly factor. And googliness was just that this insatiable curiosity that dragged you just a couple levels deeper down a rabbit hole than regular <laughs> yeah. people would go. It didn't yeah. matter what it was. In fact, that was completely irrelevant. I, I remember hiring somebody who gave him like a perfect googly score because he was like a world champion Lego sculptor or, oh, you, know, wow. or you know, it's just like, <laughs> How do you take something to the next level where I never dreamed of taking it? You know, and that wow. shows so much about you. My, I've shared on this podcast before, one of my favorite interviewing questions is asking people to tell me about a goal they set for themselves that took more than a year to accomplish because it tells you so much about that yes. grit, that wow. learning, seeking out mentors. How do you overcome obstacles when inevitably they're going to be setbacks and something that takes that long, like whether it's training for a marathon or learning a foreign language or whatever it might be. You learn so much about somebody. That's an amazing you. question. I'm going to steal that question. Steal I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it tells me so much about somebody about, yeah, they're how much they just love the learning process, including the pivots and the setbacks and the needing to seek out mentors and looking stupid sometimes, or, you know, being surprised by, by somebody comes your way. Those are my favorite elements of those stories, much more than the successes. And yeah, I interviewed, you know, people with like Nobel prizes and former astronauts and like this guy, literally like people who did the tour de France with um, Lance Armstrong, like that's amazing. Well, what I love to hear is how did you overcome some kind of setback you never anticipated in the process? And that always goes back to your curiosity. Do you lean into it or do you lean out? Yeah, absolutely. So Garrett, looking back, do you see any commonalities or key lessons learned that might provide a roadmap to other entrepreneurs following in your footsteps? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's three key things um, that have led to those opportunities. And then the more opportunities you have, the higher your likelihood at success. Um, mm. you know, to, to use a, a sports analogy, since um, you know that's uh, what you have to do nowadays. Um, the more times you're 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 up at swing, the the higher likelihood you are to at least get a base run. 
you know, and hopefully, you know, you're, you're, you're swinging for, for the bleachers out there. Um, but the, the commonalities <clears throat> that I've, I've seen is be proficient at something uh, and be willing to, to create. Uh, so once you master something uh, and you're creating something, whether it is something visual or informational, um, then you can share it with people. And so that's my number two, which is to collaborate with others, find others, find cool people. And I say cool people specifically because they're going to be cool to you. Those are going to be the fun people that you want to work with, that you communicate with well. And there's going to be that natural fit where you're going to be able to make cool stuff with cool people. And then yes. the third thing, which I think is, is maybe uh, missed or, or uh, overlooked is filling the vacuum. Um, this is the, the situation where um, when I was in my first uh, experience out of work, it was a, a small agency and we had a big client and there's tons of work and it was, Hey, I need someone to, to work on this and, you know, putting the, throwing the hand up and, and saying yes. And then once more business was was coming in, it became well. Okay, we don't have enough uh, high level people to you know do these presentations or to talk with the client. Is someone willing to take on the responsibility to, to do this? And um, you know, I was. Those are the opportunities where if you're in that situation, you step up and you say, "I'll take on that responsibility." And you may be, you know, shivering in your boots, like, I don't know what the heck this means, but, you know, on the job training or, you know, get yourself in that position to do it. Because within that, that first ex job experience, full-time job experience, I realized people want to be able to pass on responsibility to someone they trust. Yes. And we're always looking for that. Like now as a manager and as someone, you know, in the past, it's hired uh, multiple contractors and worked with, you know, tons of people, I'm always looking for someone that I can trust that is already stepping up to me. Like that, those are two key ingredients that you can advertise wherever you are. Um, and if you're around cool people doing cool stuff, I can bet you that that responsibility that you're stepping up to do is going to be something that you're going to enjoy in the long run. And if it's not, you can pivot. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, my people ask me all the time what I miss most about my time at Google. And they might anticipate me saying the free food or, you know, the crazy, like fun, all the perks and benefits and things. It's the cool people. I mean, yeah. and my cool people are some of the biggest super nerds in the world, but they're my yeah. cool people. I loved being in rooms with them all the time. And thank you. I love these three points you brought out. I just, it so resonates with my experience. If you, I love the last one, it's really spinning in my brain a lot right now is if you can solve, I think John, John Mulaney, CEO of Whole Foods, um, calls it a win-win-win. If you as an individual contributor can make room for your manager to delegate to you, that takes something off of her, his plate. Oh. It creates a growth opportunity for you. And when those things are aligned with how the company is going to win, you get a yes every time. And yeah. that is such a beautiful formula that makes everyone win. 
And I think your, your three takeaways, I mean, that's a podcast episode in three, three minutes. That was so good. Yeah, right. <laughs> Let's listen to this part. Yeah. It's yeah, a fully encapsulated, beautiful nutshell of a of career advice. That's, that's really good. Thank you. Um, as we wrap up our conversation, I'm curious, after all of these incredible experiences that you've had, all the talents that you've developed and cultivated, how thoughtful you obviously are about your impact and what you're putting into the world right now, what has you excited about the future? Oh, um, man, th this should be a softball question for it's me. It's not but for I, me, I, no. I, I, go, I go so deep. Um, <laughs> on things and uh, early on, and th this is maybe sharing a bit too much about my own psyche, but it's probably a common human trait, which is, um, you know, we, we there's a point of disillusionment or disillusionment where you think, oh, I, I, have, I have the right answer for this or um, I have the cool ideas or I can make that cool thing. And then you get surrounded by hundreds, 10 dozens, and then hundreds and then thousands of people who can also make cool things. Mm. And then you realize, oh, geez, I'm a drop in the ocean. <laughs> if I disappeared now, the, you know, the cruise ships going on without you, like technology uh, and innovation uh, is always going to build itself. And I've had some, some very bizarre discussions uh, with people about, um, you know, the, the concepts like AI is, is building itself through us, you know, very, you know, I can, mm. I, I can go off the deep end. Um, <laughs> and understanding what my contributions and my living legacy are, um, especially now having, having a family and being able to contribute um, as, okay, re-realizing okay i am a drop in the sea and where's the tide moving do i am, am i on the am i on the right wave <laughs> kind of kind of thing yeah. and i think that everyone's decision is a bit different but the thing that i am uh excited about and it get you know gets me gets me logged on every day um working uh every day is interacting with others um, to, to create solutions to others' problems. It sounds so cliche, uh, that the problem solution statement, but when I'm able to help somebody uh, in a way that is more than a one-to-one, -one, so for me, I don't know if it's a, a personal defect or something, but I feel like I can't work on something unless I'm a, a multiplier. Like definitely don't want to be a subtractor. Yeah. Never want to be a divider. If I'm, you know, if I'm adding zero to something, I'm not helping. So how do I multiply? How do I leverage my knowledge uh, and then the knowledge of the people that surround me to have as great of an impact as I can? Um, and the thing that excites me the most is what I don't know is coming in the next day. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's. <laughs> But maybe I'm technically not answering the question. No, I think um, it is. Living on the edge of your comfort zone is what you seek out now. Oh, that's a great way to put it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's oh. what gets you excited. And I think that comes with so much wisdom, experience, and confidence 
because living on the edge of your abilities sets you up to be vulnerable, to fail publicly, especially when you're now someone who's looked to as an example and you're not pretending to be perfect. If you were living in that comfort zone, you could engineer your day to get a 10 out of 10 every single day, do everything perfectly. But what I hear from you is what excites you is living on the edge of your capabilities and continually pushing that, those boundaries forward, which I think is very exciting place to be in, which is why you are my favorite kind of human. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for drawing that out of me. It's <laughs> like giving me, it's the right lens. It's giving me the, the right perspective. Yeah. Pulled me out of my, yeah, out of my own view. I think it's really inspiring. We have just scratched the surface of your wisdom, your leadership, your, what you're putting out into the world. How can people continue to follow what you're doing? I'm so already wanting to dig in and um, take your course that you're teaching your internal team. Can I be a fly on the wall? Yeah. <laughs> What's the best way to connect with you, follow your thought leadership, and um, hear more about what you're working on at Garmin and beyond? Yeah, uh, LinkedIn really is the best way to follow me. I, um, I'm happy to jump on calls and have conversations with people. Actually, the intern I had this summer um, was a, a direct LinkedIn contact, or he reached out, uh, blind blind called me, so to speak, through LinkedIn. So um, feel free to reach out to me through, through there. I love that. Well, this podcast is an example of that. We originally connected on LinkedIn and here years later, I'm did. Like, hey, I think you're fascinating and perfect for, for my tribe of like-minded people who are betting on themselves. So.